2.99. Why are you judging my daughter's diving? I wasn't talking about her. I was finalizing this month's special at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 2.99% interest for 10 years. Wow, 2.99. Yeah? Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. You know, today is, of course, the the cutdown day in the NFL. And, and um, look, I'm a football fan. Don't get me wrong. But it's always interesting to me, all, all the attention this gets, because here's the bottom line. Now, I understand it. if you're one of the guys that's trying to make the team, it's a big deal. But if you're a huge Packers fan, if the long-term success of the team depends on whether, you know, the, the 52nd guy that makes the 53-person roster is the, the fourth backup tackle or the third backup guard. I mean, it, that's that's really not how how the, the league is going to be decided. But, I mean, I understand if you're the one that's competing for the job, it's a very big deal. But from a fan's perspective, okay, the guy who's number four on the depth charge, does it really make that much difference? But yet, because we are passionate fans, we, we pay attention to that. Speaking of fans, had an interesting experience last night, which... It's one of the reasons why I think people love sporting events. Now, let me kind of back into this. Um, I am really blessed in, in my life. I, I'm just, I, I have a job that I love doing. Matter of fact, we, um, it just, I'm reminded, just right before I came on the air, like the, the, the old mail, old-fashioned mail came and there's a letter addressed to me it was from a lady who went on a trip to alaska a couple weeks ago and and she had gone with her daughter um and apparently the story was her husband their their dream trip had always been to go to alaska and her husband had passed away a couple years ago and her daughter came to her and said we're doing this and so they, they were just they were absolutely just just absolutely delightful and she she just wrote this really really sweet note you know telling about it was a trip of a lifetime and how much they enjoyed it and how much they enjoyed hanging out with us and um, especially calling out my wife Fran about and and that's true Fran is just such a much better person than I am there's just no question about it and and it was just it was I'm thinking boy this is this is really great you know you get to do this trip to Alaska and you get to touch people's lives and you get paid for talking to pe- people on a daily basis about stuff that you like so I am very very blessed in that regard and I'm very very blessed in my personal life we um I have all sorts of friends and um, all sorts of things to do and a beautiful and loving wife and a great dog and like all these friends. But it, it's like anything. Every once in a while, you you can kind of like overdo it. For example, during the summer, we are very, very busy. And I, I appreciate that there's some people out there that just, you know, don't, don't have options. So I'm not complaining about it. But every once in a while, I get worn down. So... Last night, and I, I think I probably was whining to some people about it, I admit it, but last night was the, the seventh consecutive night that we had stuff to do. So we had been out every night for seven nights in a row. Now, again, I'm not complaining. I, I love my, my friends, and we went to formal events, and we went to fun events, we went to baseball games, we played golf, we did family stuff, but it was like seven nights in a row, and I admit I was dragging. And between, you know, that and preparing to do the radio show, and if you can listen to my voice, I'm still getting over this cold I caught in Alaska that's kind of buried in my chest, and I'm still dealing with that. But but I was burning out. And so last night, we had WTMJ tickets to go see the, the baseball game, and we had... 
invited some friends of ours and things like that. And and I admit that before the game, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just, I'm really, 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 really tired. And I, I just... I guess there, there's no way around this, and, and you know we, we gotta you know meet everybody at the game, and the games these games don't. I'm not gonna get back till eleven thirty or twelve o'clock at night, and and I admit I was a little bit whiny about this entire thing, but you know we we went, and again it's not that I don't love my friends and stuff, it's always fun, but it was it's been seven nights in a row, and I'm kind of I was just sort of tired, and I would have been very happy staying home. So we go to the baseball game, and the Brewers take a three to nothing lead over the Pittsburgh Pirates, a team they should beat. Um, but you never know exactly what's going to happen. And then, as has happened predictably, unfortunately, a lot of times this year, they blow it. The Pittsburgh Pirates score four runs in either the fourth or the fifth inning, and they're, they're ahead four to three. Then they add a home run, and it's five to three. And you're sitting there thinking, my God, they're going to lose this game as well. And I was there I was there at the game Friday night where they somehow managed to only give up two hits to the Chicago Cubs, but they were by the same guy, and both were two-run home runs, and they lose four to three in ten innings. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be another one of those games. And then all of a sudden, in the bottom of the eighth inning, they're behind by two runs. They get a runner on base and this new guy this young man that they just called up from the, the minors Garrett Mitchell he, he hits his first home run of his career and it's five to five and then in the bottom of the ninth inning you've got a man on first and Keston Hara comes up and he, he's had a horrible game he's just struck out a couple times he's really looked bad he tries to bunt he doesn't come close to doing that and then then he hits a two-run home run and the Brewers win seven to five and everybody goes home happy and I was thinking all the way home it's that magic of sports that you know I'm just I'm so very glad that I was there yesterday to see that game and and everybody's leaving with big smiles on their faces and stuff like that. It's just it it's it's the magic of sports and it's why I think so many of us love going to these these games whether it's baseball or football or basketball or, or whatever because you never know exactly what you're going to see. You never know when you walk in there, is it going to be a dull game? Is it going to be a blowout? Or is it going to be a game where you have this comeback from some of the most unlikely people that, that lead it? And the Brewers end up winning. So it was just an absolutely great game. Hope you had a chance to listen to it on the radio or maybe watch it on television. And I'm thrilled that I was one of the 23,000 people that were you know, in the stadium with a chance to see it. And I was completely and totally invigorated. Of course... Then you get home, you work for a couple hours to get ready for the show, go to bed at 1 o'clock, and the dog, who had been, I don't know, she'd been sleeping while we were gone, the dog now wakes up at 2 o'clock and the dog wants to play. So that's that was how I spent from 2 to 3.30 in the morning. But that's okay. Tonight, tonight I get time off for good behavior, so I think we're going to stay home. But it's just wonderful. Oh, by the way, one of the stories, Joe Biden, of course, is coming to um, Wisconsin, coming to the Milwaukee area for the Labor Day event. One of the big questions you might want to ask him or somebody might want to ask him is, gee, what about that stock market? After the stock market plunging a thousand points on Friday because of inflation, thank you, Mr. Biden, uh, the stock market was down yesterday. Today it's down 357 points. What's going on, especially over the last year and a half, I think partly due to Joe Biden's policies, is you've seen one of the greatest blows to middle and upper middle class and probably even, you know, lower middle class wealth. If you've had money in 401ks or various types of pension plans or something, the hit you have taken has just been unbelievable. And if you look at a lot of the Biden policies, it's going to get worse. You, you can't give 
$330 billion in taxpayer-paid-for relief for student loans and not expect that that's not going to have a huge impact on inflation, which is not going to only, only going to drive up the costs that we all pay for things in grocery stores and in drugstores and pharmaceuticals and all that, but it's also... It's also just having direct hits on the stock market and causing all those of you who invest in your retirement, your your retirement funds are a lot less than they were a year and a half ago. And unfortunately, the problem is nobody seems to have a good handle on how to handle this inflation. And contrary to what Biden said in the first place, it does not appear that it is what was the word he used, transitory. It looks like it's going to be with us for a long while, which means this stock market decline is probably going to be with us for a long long while as well. After a thousand point drop on Friday, the Dow down 361 points today, and there doesn't appear to be any, any relief in sight. When we come back, another crazy idea out of California that some people are suggesting might be the model moving forward. I will explain. We will discuss. It seems like at least in my opinion, every crazy idea that somehow gets traction in the country, it starts in, in California. And it's one of the reasons why California now has a, a net um, a loss in population. After years and years of people going to the West Coast, now they're fleeing California in droves, just like they're fleeing New York as well, in many cases because people just want to get away from the effect of a lot of the crazy left-wing policies that have been here. So here's... The story. This is the headline. California fast food wages. So the wages that people make if they're working at a Wendy's or a McDonald's or fill in the blank. California fast food wages would be set by the government under a bill passed by the state legislature. California's legislature passed a bill yesterday to create a government panel that would set wages for an estimated half million fast food workers in the state, a first-in-the-U.S. approach to workplace regulation that labor unions hope will spread nationally. I'll bet they will. The bill, known as the FAST Act, would establish a panel with members appointed by the governor and legislative leaders composed of workers, union representatives, employers, and business advocates. They would set hourly wages of up to $22 an hour for fast food workers starting next year and then could increase them annually by the same rate as the consumer price index up to a maximum of 3.5%. So in other words... If you own a restaurant and you need to hire people to work at your restaurant, instead of simply allowing the the marketplace to work and saying, okay, I'm going to pay $10 an hour, I'm going to pay $12 an hour, in California they're going to make the minimum wage, I think $15 an hour next year, that's fine. Instead of saying, I'm going to pay $15 an hour and I'm going to see what happens. And if I can get people to work for $15 an hour, that's great. If I can't, well, and then I've got a couple choices, including, you know, maybe I need to, to raise my wages. You would not have that opportunity in California to do that. Under this bill, this government panel, this government panel would tell you what you would have to pay. 
So you're that McDonald's owner, you're the Wendy's owner, you're the Culver's owner. You don't get a chance to say, okay, what's the free market going to bear here? You are told you've got to pay $22 an, an hour. Uh, California's current minimum wage is $15 an hour. Um, there's an estimate that said that um, doing something like this um, would probably generate a 60% increase in labor costs and raise fast food prices by about 20%. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess to me, the, the, the biggest thing isn't necessarily, all right, should, should somebody make $17 an hour or $22 an hour? The thing is that you have the government that would now tell all businesses how much they have to pay. And by the way, this isn't a $22 an hour minimum wage. This is a panel that says in a particular industry, we are going to require employers to pay at least X. And in this case, the X would be $7 more than the minimum wage. So this this isn't, again, it's not a minimum wage. It is a minimum wage for a particular type of industry that does not allow the individual, in this case, the restaurant owners, to be able to, I don't know, negotiate any, any different. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is a model that in, in some of the semi-socialist states that you find in Europe that, that they that they that they use where you set like what the wages are essentially set by the state in the United States do you think the government a government panel should be telling individual employers apart from the whole minimum wage question how much they have to pay somebody in an industry and if you have a guy that or a gal or whoever that, that owns in Wisconsin say owns an Arby's restaurant in Manaqua you know should that should the government should Tony Evers and other people involved in the Evers administration or whatever tell that restaurant owner in Manaqua how much money he should spend and should it be the same for example in Manaqua as it is in I don't know downtown Milwaukee or is this something that maybe we want the free market to decide 855-616-1620 we discuss in a moment this would be arguably the first time anywhere in the United States this has been forced onto employers where you set a wage by a sector. In other words, saying that the government coming in, saying to everybody who runs a fast food restaurant, in this case in California, regardless of what the economic conditions are in the particular area, you're going to have to pay, in this case, $22 an hour for fast food workers. 855-616-1620. Katie in Burlington. Katie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I don't understand the logic if they can't have the foresight to see what's going to happen in California. When you are a young entrepreneur or the, you know, talent in your field and you want to open a business or open a restaurant, are you going to put California at the top of your list anymore? Are they going to attract the, the you know, up-and-coming chefs and mm-hmm. the smart tech people who want to start businesses or if this is what they're going to do to them? I just don't see how... California doesn't see that long term, how that's going to affect attracting, you know, 
the best in the businesses. Lori, why? I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, why? Why would you, if you're thinking about opening a restaurant or, or investing, and you can get, let's say, because of market conditions, you can get qualified help for sixteen dollars an hour for for the sake of argument. For, let, let's say that. Yeah, I, I can because of where I live and and where this business is, we can offer sixteen bucks an hour. The government, though, is telling you you have to pay $22 an hour. Okay, why would anybody get involved in a business like that? Why would you invest your money in that where you are agreeing to allow the government to tell you what you have to pay in a particular sector? And again, this isn't a minimum wage conversation. This is one particular sector. We're deciding, because we're the government, we're going to pick this out and we're going to give fast food workers 22 bucks. Okay, well, well, maybe if I'm an entrepreneur, instead of opening that fast food restaurant, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up some other restaurant or some other business that is where I don't have the government micromanaging managing me and telling me I've got to offer this type of salary. David in Milwaukee. David, you're on WTMJ. David, going once, going twice. David was going to say that this is going to cost jobs, and, and he is exactly right. Look, here, here's what's going to happen. You jack up the labor costs, and what you do is you make automation more and more desirable. For example, here, here's the here's the deal. So maybe I don't know. I don't know what it takes to how many people it takes to run a fast food restaurant. But maybe what you end up doing is you say, okay, look, I I no longer we we can't have the indoor restaurant open. We don't need as many counter people, for example, because I don't want to have to pay them twenty two bucks an hour. So we're just going to go to drive through exclusively, and you're going to you know order on a keypad, or you're going to have to order on an app, and then you know there'll be some person at the drive through window who takes your money, and maybe we've got two cooks. Maybe we can do this with three people or four people instead of hiring seven or eight people. Maybe we're going to go to the kiosks. That's the big thing. Those kiosks nowadays, um, they cost a little bit of money to install, but you get to a certain point where if you've got the government telling you how much money you have to pay people, and it's way more than you need to pay them to get qualified people to do the jobs, well, pretty soon, a lot of those jobs are going to disappear, a victim of automation. I say this all the time. I say it again. Don't California my Wisconsin. And if you want to understand why people are fleeing California in droves, it's stuff like this. Brewers have their sights set on October. Things are heating up as the crew welcomes the Pittsburgh Pirates to American Family Field for a three-game set. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre has the call all series long, sponsored by Steinhoffel's Labor Day Sale. Our coverage starts this evening at 6 o'clock. WTMJ is the home of Brewers baseball. And like I say, if uh, last night, great game, just an absolutely great game, and I had the pleasure of being there and Hopefully, I mean, I love the late inning dramatics, but it'd be nice to see him just kind of like take a 10-run lead and hold that 10-run lead just for a game or two. number of people weighing in on our last conversation about, you know, the latest idea out of California, which will gain traction. This is, this is the type of thing that somebody like Mandela Barnes would take national if, you know, if you could get enough votes to do it. And it's something that Biden would, would sign. Let's force people to pay you know, let's force employers to pay in what a particular sector we think they should pay. Jeff, you should make T-shirts that say, don't California my Wisconsin, Jeff Wagner. I'd buy one for sure. You know, we used to have T-shirts that said, um, life is tough, get a helmet, the Jeff Wagner show. Our marketing people are always looking for stuff. That would be kind of fun. Don't California 
my Wisconsin. Um, Jeff, um, all self-service checkout grocery stores. I would hate that. Yeah, that, that's the, the effect of this. If you, you do something like this, employers are going to figure out a way to you know, keep their costs in line. And what that means they're going to do is they're going to automate more. And so you're, you're going to have fewer people. That is inevitable. Jeff, look at Walmart. They're going all to self-service checkouts, um, now. Um, yeah, I think there's no question about it. Jeff, it is a way to unionize employees without having them vote for the union up and down. Yeah, to an extent uh, that's um, like it. Jeff, don't you think at $22 an hour, a lot of current fast food employees are going to find themselves without work, better pay, better talent? Um, then where do they go? Do they go to retail? Yeah, I think that there's something like that. Jeff, this is just going to force automation and less physical people in the workplace. I stopped at McDonald's for the first time, and I can't remember how long last Saturday. I went through the line. I bought three meals. It was $30 for that cost. In the future, when I'm hungry, I'll go somewhere else. Um, There is more bang for the buck. Yeah, the, the estimates are if you do something like this, even at the low end, that, that's the $22 an hour across the sector, you will increase costs at least 20% to the customer, at least 20%. So you're already talking about, you know, you, you go to McDonald's with three kids and it's after the soccer game on a Saturday afternoon and you want to grab a quick lunch. Well, you're probably, you know, talking, you know, 40 bucks plus just to go through the McDonald's drive through with, with three kids, more if they're teenagers or something like that. Add another 20% onto it. And I tell you, you know, the, the business, something's got to give uh, because people just can't continue to pay those skyrocketing prices. All right, let us, let us switch gears. There was a piece in today's Wall Street Journal. I want to just share a portion of it with you, and then I want to tie this into Wisconsin. The headline in the editorial is, A Student Loan Forgiveness Bonus. Now, we all know that Joe Biden has decided, in an effort to try to buy votes in November, that he is going to, I I still don't think you can legally do it, and, and you know there's going to be court challenges, but Biden's plan is to take people who make $125,000 $125,000 or less and have student loans, he'll wipe away ten grand of that. If you married couple make two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and you each have ten and you each have student loans, he'll wipe away twenty thousand. And we've talked about this over the last several days, that this notion that if you're making a quarter million dollars a year, the rest of the taxpayers, including everybody who paid back their student loans or who worked so they didn't have to take student loans out or who didn't go to college but maybe took loans out to start their businesses, everybody else has got to pay for the couple that makes $240,000 so you can walk away with 20 grand of your loan wiped away. And, and I think I think this is going to be a political loser at the end of the day. It is clearly inflationary. Look at what the stock market is doing today. If you don't think inflation has a significant impact on things, but it's Biden's effort to try to buy votes from a particular segment of the, the voting population. Now, I think it's going to backfire because I think a lot of people are going to be turned off on it. But here's the Wall Street Journal. A student loan forgiveness bonus. Democrats also made debt cancellation tax-free to borrowers. President Biden's student loan write-off is a gift that keeps on giving, unless you're the sap who paid off her college loan or didn't go to college. Yeah. 
Thanks to a little-known provision in the March 2021 COVID spending bill, student borrowers will get a hefty tax benefit on top of their $10,000 or $20,000 in canceled debt. Um, the general principle for taxation is that, and both under state and federal law, is that loan forgiveness is taxable income. That that's that's how it is with with loans. If for somehow somebody writes off that loan, so you you don't have to pay back the loan. It, it is that is a taxable event. That that's like giving you money, which would be taxable. If a borrower earns income of sixty thousand dollars and has ten thousand dollars in loan forgiven, his taxable income for the year becomes seventy thousand dollars. The money is a windfall gift. Okay, so that's that that's how it works. You pay taxes as a general principle of, of tax law. You pay taxes if the loan on the portion is is of the provision on the portion that is forgiven. Well, apparently. In the bill that was passed in March of 2021, there is this little-known provision tucked into there, sponsored by Elizabeth Warren, there she is again, that makes loan forgiveness tax-free through January 1st of 2026. So if Biden is able to get this tax loan, this tax forgiveness thing through the courts, And again, I still think that that's an if there is a provision that says you do not have to pay taxes. So it's kind of a double whammy. You're making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. You get twenty thousand dollars in tax forgiveness and you don't have to pay for it. Meanwhile, again, everybody else that's out there, you get loans that, uh, well, you're, you're paying back your loan or if somebody gives you a gift that is taxable income. Now, here's one of the interesting things that is federal law. And the Journal Sentinel points this out today. In in Wisconsin, student loan forgiveness is taxable. Wisconsin student loan borrowers may be in for a bit of sticker shock next spring when they file their state income taxes. Well, that's assuming you get the forgiveness. Under President Joe Biden's loan forgiveness plans, borrowers earning less than $125,000 annually will receive at least $10,000 in debt wiped away. I'm sorry, I just can't read that enough. I, who, in what alternate reality do we think that taxpayers, many of whom make a lot less than that, should be paying to wipe away $10,000 or $20,000 in debt accumulated by people who make a lot more than them. Okay, eh, I, I digress. But the discharge of student loan debt is taxable income under current Wisconsin law, according to the Legislative Fiscal Bar- Bureau. This would mean owing hundreds of dollars for most borrowers. The Republican-controlled legislature would need to change the laws to prevent borrowers from being subject to the tax. Democratic Governor Tony Evers, who has never never missed a government giveaway that he didn't like. That's my note. Democrat Governor Tony Evers doesn't believe Wisconsinites who have their student loans forgiven should be penalized with more income taxes. Okay, let's tee this up. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, this is sort of an academic discussion in some senses because I'm not sure the courts are going to allow Biden to do this. But let us say in Wisconsin that you have... The individual 
who makes $120,000 a year, who gets $10,000 wiped away in student loan debt. Is it unreasonable to expect them to pay taxes on that $10,000 gift that the rest of us, the rest of us suckers, have been forced to give that student loan borrower. 855-616-1620. In other words, are you outraged that if we're giving somebody $10,000 or $20,000 to a couple in student tax, student loan tax relief, that they should have to pay, I don't know, a few dollars in taxes on it? 855-616-1620. Tony Evers says, yeah, I don't think anybody should have to pay taxes on this. Why not? We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, the whole thing makes me furious. I put myself through two years of community college, got pregnant, did the responsible thing, raised the child. I make thirty five thousand dollars a year. Never had student loan debt, but guess I this will now make me not want to pay taxes. Um, yes, Jeff, the student loan forgiveness plus making it tax free is like a free campaign ad for the Democrats, paid by us suckers. The only way to hold the line on this is to challenge it in court. Hold firm to loan forgiveness is taxable and then vote the rascals out of office. Jeff, government stimulus payments were taxed as income at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, there's no question about that. Um, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And then I have a couple of people who still obsess over this PPP loan. Well, you know, people, people didn't have to pay for the PPP money. Well, that, that is apples and oranges. I'm, I'm sorry. I understand that's the Democrat talking point, but. I mean, what happened was you had these PPP loans that came out after the government shut down businesses at the start of COVID in March of 2020. And so the idea was, we don't want to crater the economy. We want to encourage businesses that we've told can't operate. We want to still encourage them to try to keep their workers on the payroll. And we want to support the restaurants by encouraging them to do carry out, even though we've told them that they can't have people coming in. So we'll make loans to try to keep the economy going. And you can argue whether this made sense or not. What we'll do is we've made the decision that we are going to, because we caused you to shut down, we ordered you to shut down, we will, and we want to try to keep people working. What we're going to do is we're going to forgive these PPP loans if if you followed and did all the rules, okay, that was caused and was necessitated not through the business's choices, but because of stuff the government did. It is, I'm sorry to people who want to see otherwise, it is completely and totally different than student loans, which people decided voluntarily to take out so you could get that four-year English major. And I'm not ripping it, but, you know, you sit down, you voluntarily make the decision, I'm going to school, you get the benefit. It is apples and oranges. And I understand that there's some people out there who want to say, oh, this is the same sort of thing, and this is just, that was a government handout to business. And interestingly, those people were the same ones who were saying, yeah, let's have the government PPP loans because we don't want these businesses to disappear. 855-616-1620, let's talk to David in Milwaukee. David, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, kind of going along the same lines that you were talking about, this loan forgiveness is only for for another three years, correct? 2026. Well, the, the taxation thing expires in 2026, yeah. Yes, yes. So you take this, these next three years, compare that 
to all the years that these corporations here in this country have been receiving tax benefits, tax credits for moving jobs overseas, for doing, you know, this or that or the other, it, it doesn't really compare into what these corporations have gotten. So I'm not going to get all that upset over it. I'm just going to let this, like I uh, told your screener, I'm just going to let this play out and let's see how this thing works, you know, how it all thing, how this plays out. And, you know, if these guys get this credit, good on them. If well, they don't, well... Well, and, okay and David, and, that, and that's that's wonderful that you don't care that you are screwing over an enormous quantity, an enormous number of of other people who, for example, paid their student loans back. You don't care about them. You don't care about the people who forego decided that we're not going to go to as expensive a college and we're going to work and we're going to give up all this stuff. And you don't care about them. You don't care about the senior citizens living on fixed income who are now going to be having to pay so that other people can, I don't know, can get $10,000 forgiven. I I understand, well, it's this corporate welfare. And I'm willing, if you want to talk about individual corporate corporate acts, that's fine. And and we can discuss those. But this whole notion of this class envy that's out there, and it's all these evil corporations that have gotten the tax breaks. Well, corporations get the tax breaks because to the extent they employ people and they keep the economy going and they provide all the jobs that are out there, we make the decision that it's desirable. But I understand there's this class envy that, that's out there and it's all these evil corporations. And, you know, if you want to talk about individual laws and acts and different types of taxation, I'm willing to do it. But this is it is, in my opinion, a fundamentally unfair shift of resources where we move again from people who, you know, if if Biden really wasn't completely and totally pandering, what you might have been able to do is he might have said, look, I think that there are some people who really haven't received the benefits of their education and, and maybe they, they went to college and they got their degree as opposed to just taking the student loan and, and using it on like living expenses or whatever. They, they got their degree and then they're, they're in an industry that has just bottomed out. There's no jobs in this or whatever and they're not making any sort of money and they're struggling. Okay. If, if he had tried to target that, I think it would be a lot less objectionable. But I'm sorry. Explain to me why the couple that's making $250,000 a year should have the I don't know, the senior citizens who are on fixed income, maybe making 50 or 60 grand a year, why they should be paying for that couple's student loan relief. It just, again, makes no sense to me. If you wanted to say, look, we're really going to try to help out some of the people that need helping, I appreciate that. I, I get it. You could target it. This is just like those COVID relief checks that kept coming and coming and coming without being tied in any way, shape, or form to people who suffered during COVID. Remember that? We, we talked about this. Look, there were some people that because of COVID and because of the government mandates shutting down businesses and things like that, they lost their jobs. They lost their livelihoods. They were struggling. There were other people who worked through COVID. COVID did not affect their incomes in any material way at all. And yet we gave everybody money. You know, we, we didn't tie it at all into who might need it, who might be affected by it. It was just this massive government giveaway. And I understand Trump was responsible for the first one. I get it. Trump was the first one was OK. The second ones and the third ones, 
those were wrong. Continuing the, the government give outs after giveaways after the COVID pandemic was essentially over. Those were wrong. They fueled the inflation problem that we're looking at now. But to, if, you know, if Biden were serious about trying to help out people, you would tailor it maybe to the people who, uh, again, really need it. Explain to me why that couple making a quarter million dollars needs the senior citizens in West Dallas to be paying their student loans off. And I don't think there's any justification. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. Um, one final note on what we were talking about before I had a text that came in over the uh, over the break. Jeff, comparing PPP loans and college debt forgiveness is an illogical progressive argument. I was president of a company that received PPP funds, and we did not or could not reduce our employment during COVID. The entire PPP loan went straight to our employees, many of whom would have been laid off during the pandemic when our revenues were down 30 to 40 percent. It's a ridiculous argument. Yes, it is a ridiculous argument, but the people who are trying to justify handouts and, and taking money from certain groups of people and giving it, redistributing it to other people, they'll grasp any ridiculous argument they can have. To that point... There is a fascinating piece in today's Wall Street Journal, and I want to share it with you, um, at least the, the concept of it, because this is the untold story of where we are going in this country. There are people out there who are the class warriors, the, the evil rich. People have Some people have too much money. Other people don't have enough money. And, and that's and, and of course, I, I just I listen to this and, and I think of several personal friends of mine who are, are very, very successful, who started out with, with almost nothing and, and yet were able to build businesses. And now they are reaping the rewards of that. But it's not because, gee, you had this system that rewarded. I'm going to I'll tell you a quick story, but I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to name the couple, though, by my references, some people might know it there. I have a couple uh, of friends of ours who own a series of fast food restaurants, a lot of fast food restaurants. And they started off years and years ago, like 40 years ago. He was a mechanic. She was um, working as, as, a, as a singer and, <laughs> you know, occasionally like as a singer in like lounges and things like that. And they wanted to better. They wanted to do better. And he, my, my friend saw this opportunity, and he wanted to buy a white hen pantry. This was in Chicago. Remember the old white hen pantries? And so he wanted to buy a white hen pantry. And so he went to the people with the white hen pantry, and he says, look, I, I want to buy. I, I think this is a great location. And they said, yeah, it might be a great location, but, you know, um, if, if we open it, we're not going to open it with you. He said, well, I really want to do this. So what they did about a year later, white hen pantry calls them and said, we, we've got this white hen pantry. It's not not where, you know, you were, but it's an underperforming white hen pantry. It's the it's the worst by worst, I mean economically as far as like producing stuff. It's the worst white hen pantry in the Chicago area. But if you want to buy it, you you can. Like I say, he's a mechanic. They 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 had he said he said I had um 
his wife had $2,000 in his check in her checking account. He had 500 bucks in his pocket. So they, they got the right to take this franchise for 2,500 bucks, which was every dime they had. And so they started working at this one white hen pantry and, you know, they're, they're working themselves, both of them 80 hours a week and all trying to make a go of it. And finally they come up with this idea and, and, and they're struggling because again, it's, they're, they're not bringing people in. And they came up with this idea of, of sandwiches. They said, well, we, we've got some factories here and, and and maybe what we can do to try to attract the, the factory workers is we'll 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 sell sandwiches and we'll we'll you know have handmade deli sandwiches and this is decades ago so they they take a risk they hire a couple people and it took off and pretty soon everybody from all these area factories were coming in and they were buying they were buying sandwiches and you know they they started hiring people and then you know they were able to use that money that they got to buy a little bit of a better white hen pantry and then you know they they got involved and they were able to get a franchise for you know a more prominent national company and and but they worked their their butts off and they were able to again grow this to a point where yeah now they they own it they're in the process of selling them if they haven't sold them but but you know but they they yes they they benefited but they benefited from all their hard work it's an american success story but they wanted to better themselves and so what they did is they took the risks they worked hard and they succeeded and i can't tell you how many people i have in in my orbit of my life who who are like that and i know that there's some people who might look up their nose at them, say, oh, down their nose at them. These are the, these these wealthy people and stuff. Well, they're people who started with nothing, built built very successful things, have given back to the community in big ways over the years, and yet some of them are treated with disdain. Which brings me to this story in the Wall Street Journal. I understand there's the class warrior warfare people out there who say, you know, we we you know we we should we should the the people who have wealth. They, they have too much wealth. We should take it from them. And, of course, wealth, you know, people think wealth is typically anybody who, you know, has $50 more than they have. That, that's, that's the wealthy. But it's this real interesting story that, that's out there, and it's it's piece by former Senator Phil Graham and somebody else. What, what they did is they, they took the most recent census data, and they, they also matched incomes, Okay, so they, they matched incomes to see what, we're, what people were doing. So here, here's this. The bottom quintile, this means the, the bottom 20% of, of households, okay, bottom 20% of, of households based on, on taxes. Um, the bottom 20% among working age households earned on average like $7,000. That's the bottom 20%, the bottom quintile. And only 36% were employed. So the vast majority of people who were in that bottom quintile, very, very few employed. However, by the time you then factor in um, transfers of payments and government assistance and things like that, those households, only 36% of whom work, making you know, like $7,000, their average income, when you look at all the government benefits that were doled out, rose to $48,000. So, so follow me. The bottom 20%, um, only 30%, 36% work. But when you factor in whatever money people might have got from work— and the, the value of all the different government benefits, it translates into about $48,000 in total. Okay, so 
the average working age household in the second quintile. That would be the, the people 20% to 40%, that, that second lowest income group. In that second quintile, the average working age household earned $31,800, right, as opposed to $7,000 for the, the people in the lowest quintile. 85% of them were employed. So in that second lowest quintile, again, the the, 80%, the 60% to 80%, that, that lowest factor, 85% of them worked, and the average income was $31,800. Again, after transfers, taxes, and government assistance that the people in this second quintile got, their income was $50,492 on average. Okay, so let me, let me break this down. If you were in the lowest quintile, only 36% of whom worked, by the time you t- factor in, on average, the amount of money people earned, and then all the government benefits, the, the income was forty-eight grand. For that next quintile, 85% worked, and by the time you factor in the government benefits they got and their salary, their average income was $50,492. In other words, the people that worked only made about three grand more than the majority of people who didn't work who were in that lowest quintile. So this, of course, raises the question of why work? You know, why, why work? The middle quintile, the, the people in that 40 to 60 percent, they earned $66,400. percent were employed. But after taxes and transfers, they kept only $61,000. So they, they were net, you know, they, they didn't get much in benefits in, and, and they paid out money. So you have these people who are, are working— you know they're getting sixty-one grand, and the people who aren't working are getting forty-eight grand. That's one of the real scandals that are out there: the fact that we have created this system in the United States, where at least for a lot of people, there's really no difference, no significant difference between working and not working. Which we saw this during the pandemic when you had the the continuation of unemployment benefits and things like this, which raises the question of, okay, why work? I mean, really, why work unless you're one of those people like I was talking about earlier that is the entrepreneur that, you know, has this drive and stuff. But you look at these numbers and we are creating in our society essentially an almost economic incentive for people to not work because we're giving so many benefits out that the difference between working your butt off and not working at all really isn't that much of a difference. The the people who worked that that 40 to 60% quintile they're only you know they they're they're at 61,000 the people who aren't working in that bottom quintile when you factor in government benefits they're getting 48 grand i mean it it's not like it's hundreds of thousands of dollars and again it raises the question have we created a society where we are creating a disincentive for able bodied people to work our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I understand this is kind of an esoteric concept, but it really 
it, it really struck me that we we as a society are moving in this direction of essentially disincentivizing people to want to better themselves, disincentivizing people for for wanting to work. Because again, I I I understand that, you know, if we've set up this tax structure where, you know, you don't really get that much more money from working than not working, well why wouldn't you just rather sit around where where every day is Saturday? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Here's the the money paragraph in the story in the Wall Street Journal. Given the surge in transfer payments since the war on on poverty, you know, money from one group of people to another, it isn't surprising that the percentage of working age people in the bottom quintile who actually worked plummeted from 68% in 1967 to 36% in 2017, with transfer payments giving recipients about as much for not working as they could earn working, only a mandatory work requirement as a condition for receiving means-tested benefits will bring them back into the labor market. While official statistics don't count two-thirds of those transfer payments and don't show the income equity they produce, Americans who work hard to make ends meet are aware of it. Despite the efforts by some Democratic politicians to provoke resentment against the rich, when was the last time you heard working people complain that some people in America are rich? The hostility of working people is increasingly focused on a system where those who don't break a sweat are about as well off as they are. Yeah, I I think that's a really, really interesting point. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Julie. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So this is, I have a couple of thoughts on this uh, from a personal perspective. Um, First of all, I'm a psychologist. And what I've seen um, come to pass in our country is beyond frightening. Um, What we're seeing are people that are getting by without working and they're being rewarded for not working. And it's actually increasing um, the depression in, in these people incredibly um, because you have no sense of pride. You have no sense of contributing to society. And um, the other personal piece I'd like to mention, my father uh, had MS and he was in a wheelchair and he worked every day of his life in a wheelchair um, and he did not let anything deter him from working. And I just think that that attitude is missing today. Yeah, no, thanks. Well, you know, I mean, look, nobody here is arguing, at least I'm not arguing, that there shouldn't be safety nets for for people. But for able-bodied people, when you get into a situation, and the numbers indicate that that this is where we are now, where the the value of, of working actually, you know, is, is not that much more, not much, that much different from the value of, of not working. When you've got a government that has created a system like that, should we be surprised that you have huge chunks of people who make the decision not to work? And, you know, we, we've seen that's what happened during the pandemic with the, the unemployment insurance. We kept extending and extending unemployment insurance and, and people just made the decision, well, okay, why why go back to work if if I can make almost as much money 
by being, you know, unemployed and collecting unemployment as I can going to a job that I really don't like or I consider it to be a dead-end job or whatever. Why would I go do that? 855-616-1620. Let's go to, is it Warred? In Milwaukee. Hello? Oh, Jared. Jared. Okay, I'm sorry. I won't tell you how my producer spelled that. Jared in Milwaukee. Hi, Jared. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, So I I think it comes down to um, we've become a society of self-pity. And, um, you know, people, the, the answer is no longer, like, I need to work more. I need to... Um, put more money on the table for myself or my family. Um, I think it's also come down to people aren't ashamed of being unemployed anymore. In fact, I think there's some people uh, proud of being able to take advantage of the system that's in place. Um, and it's just, you know, it's it's really, you know, quite sad about, you know, how people don't want to fill um, jobs that are needed. And, and you know, and, and the problem, too, Jared, is, is you, you, you miss these opportunities. That's why I started off this segment with the story about the, this guy I know who started out literally with nothing. I mean, 500 bucks in his right. pocket and two grand in his wife's checking account, and they invested it all to buy this white hen pantry. And, and they have done, over the years, through incredible hard work, they, they've, they've done quite well for themselves. But, but they had that ambition. They had that drive. They, they were willing to say, okay, we're going to work 80 or 100 hours. This is going to be our commitment because we want to make a better life for ourselves. You're, you're just missing out on that because we are creating this giant, I mean, safety net. We don't call it a safety net. It's just kind of like a hammock so people don't feel like, gee, I, I want to have to go out and, and work. And what we're also saying is for the people, a lot of the people who are working, you're you're not that much better off than if you weren't working. So what's the incentive to, right. to go and bust your butt? Yeah, and people— I mean, people always used to want more. Uh, Now people just want to, they want to get by with as little as possible, but as long as they're getting by, they're totally content. Yeah, no, th- thanks for calling. And again, look, and I look, I, I, I understand, and, and I'm, I'm in a different sort of situation because I have been blessed. I consider, I have been blessed in my life that most of my adult life, I, I've worked at jobs that I found fulfilling, that I, I enjoyed, jobs that I would have done for free, don't tell that to my bosses, that I would have done for free, you know, but I got paid to do them. So I, I appreciate that's that's different than a lot of people who don't like their jobs or or, or whatever. But, but nevertheless, we are in a situation where we are encouraging people to, to not work. And we are actually almost, not only not to work, but even people who are working, we're saying, hey, look, the way we've got this all structured is, you know, you're, you're not materially better off by working than you are, in many cases, you know, if you're not working. How, how screwed up does that leave us as a society? We're going to continue the conversation. So if you're on the line, please hold on. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Oh, yeah. Let me reset for just a minute, because I know we have people coming in and out all the time. There's a study out that, that says, and let me try to break it down, the bottom 20% of working-age households, right, the bottom 20%, um, earned on average about $7,000 a year, and only about 36% were employed. But by the time you factor in all the government benefits, transfer payments and taxes, those households had an average income of $48,800, right? So essentially they're, they're getting like almost forty grand in, in various government benefits. 
the second quintile, that the second lowest 20%, average working age household earned $31,800. 85% of them were employed. But after transfer and taxes, they had an income of 50400 So the point is that the second quintile, that the second 20%, um, their 85% of them are working, but at the end of the day, because they qualify for fewer government benefits, they're, they're, they're only about $2,400 ahead of the people for whom only a very small percentage of people are working. Then if you go to that middle quintile that were there, the, the third 20% um, earned $66,400, 92% were employed, but after taxes and transfers, they kept only 61000 So the difference between... The, the third quintile, where you've got 92% who are employed and they're working, they, they got 61 grand. The people who largely aren't working, by the time you factor in the government benefits, they're getting 48 grand. So there's really not that much of a difference, you know, all in, all done, between the people who work and the people who, who don't work. It's, it's that income equality in some respects. We always hear about income inequality, that there's, you got the rich and the poor. It's this income inequality, the equality that we have that is almost disincentivizing people from working. Let's talk to Chris. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Hey, you know, I I think it all stems from, it's pretty simple. It stems from the parents. It stems from generations. You know, these kids and back then see these parents getting by doing nothing, accepting welfare and whatever other kind of handouts. And then they grow up and they do the same thing. You know, my father used to have a saying, my father was a policeman in the city of Milwaukee for 40 years. And I come from a very large family. And his saying was simply, you need money, get a job. You need more money, get another job. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. I it's it just... I think the only way this is going to be taken care of, it's got to be dismantled. We have to stop with the give, 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 the handouts. We, we just have to stop it. Yeah, and see, you know, it's, it's a, to me, it's as simple. Yeah, and see, Chris, I, I under look, I understand the concept. If you... If you are, are working at a job that you think it's a dead end or you don't really like or, or whatever, and you, you don't see that there's a future in that job, and your choices are, gee, I can continue doing this job I don't like, or alternatively, I, I can go on the government handouts and I can I can make nearly as much on the government handouts, I understand why why people do it. Now, my mindset would be, I want to find some job I can do that's going to, again, open up that path for success because I don't want to live on the government for, you know, my entire life. But for some reason, there's some people who are just comfortable with that. What can the government do for me? You know, and that that all has to do with your 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 makeup, your, your mindset. And, you know, that's like that's like saying to to people, how do you how do you stop a person from from stealing money? You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's part of that. Yeah. It's part of they don't care. They don't you know, whatever. But my point is, yeah. boy, you know, get a lot of doctors and start some programs and let's get people thinking. I need to start a business and make money. Well, absolutely. Thank, I, I don't yeah. know how no, right. No, thank, and and then and you still. But then, of course, the problem, Chris, is that you you, you start that business, you you make money. You and and what people don't see is they don't see the fact that you you've you you took your your last fifty bucks and you invested in this idea that may or may not work. 
And, you know, you, you've gone through years where you and your family had to sacrifice, and, and finally now your business is successful and you're employing all sorts of other people, and you are reaping some of the benefits of that success. Oh, okay. And then people, oh, this is this evil rich guy, you know, who's there. Jeff, here's a text. I'm a restaurant manager. I have a lot of employees who turn down hours because if they take the hours, they will lose their various handouts. Yeah, what, 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 you know, and, and, you know, we've talked about that before in a couple different things where, where you're at this, I mean, in America, you would think that we want to encourage people to work as hard as they can. We want to encourage people to earn as much money as they can. We want to encourage people to do the best that they possibly can. And yet, we're in a situation where um, we're in a situation where we we're now encouraging people to not do that. Okay, Charlie. I, okay, there we go. Let's talk to uh, let's see Ryan in Oconomowoc. Ryan, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, hey, I have a small landscaping company. Uh, I had it for about 25 years. And uh, next year, I'm pretty much going to change the whole thing. I'm going to basically close up shop. And the main reason is I can't find any help. And I mean, literally any. Um, Right now, my starting wage is at $25 an hour. And this is for people to come and help me rake leaves in fall. Um, And I cannot get anybody to show up to even try it. And uh, last fall, I had a few people come and it was was too hard and um, too hard for them to do. And uh, now, uh, and you're talking about you're talking about raking leaves. I mean, we're which which I I understand. I'm talking about like not, and I'm not talking about like raking wet leaves. About like just normal, you know, like the stuff you would do. I mean, yeah, Yeah. but you know, we do it for seven to eight hours. It is tedious, but I, you know, I I figured twenty five dollars an hour was. You know, a pretty pretty nice starting. Because you really don't need to be you know, skilled. Here, here, years ago, I, right here's here's no, the rake. No. It's it's not like you need special training or a college degree. Here's the rake. This is how you rake the leaves, and, and yep, this is this is where you right. rake them. Yeah, okay, I got it. Right. So I literally can't find anybody at this like right now. You know, I've got a couple workers. Like I said, I'm a small company, so I've got a couple workers, but I'm putting this extra stress on them. And you know, just it, after this long, I'm like, it's become too much of a headache. I'm just gonna close yeah. up shop and do something different, you know? Um, but then I've also been talking with some younger people about this. Like what's, what's the deal. Right. Right. Um, because I know that some of them don't have jobs and all this. And, and really one of the biggest re- thing responses that I get is like this idea that, that they, they want autonomy. They want to be in charge of their own time um, to say when they show up to jobs, yeah. um, work when they want to work. Um, so like the nine, the nine to five stuff does not work for a lot of the younger people. At nine o'clock? You, you mean, you mean, I, you mean I have to be on a job site at nine o'clock, man? Are you out of your mind? Don't you know that I'm out at the right, club till one? Yeah. <laughs> you might break a sweat, right? And yeah. so like these, you know, it's, it's a, it's a generational thing. And I think, you know, the last three years has like solidified this idea that, you know, like, oh, well, I can maybe just sit around and make some cash and, or like the whole gig economy has really changed a lot of things. So people, if they low on cash, well, they can run, you know, right. meals to people for a couple hours and feel like they're contributing, you know? Yeah. No, I, I think so. I don't know. I mean, th- this is, I don't necessarily have an, an answer other than it's, it's, a ba- it's bad for the country 
where we disincentivize people from from wanting to work. And and I I had problems with this while we kept with the unemployment stuff during COVID, where we keep encouraging people to not have to go out to work. And if and if you if you wonder why every place around that you see has help wanted signs now as opposed to two or three years ago, I, I think this is part of the situation. You've got people who found out that I, I can get all these different benefits, I can get all these government handouts, and yeah, I actually even have to be careful because I'm able bodied and I can and I'm not talking about the people who can't work. That's a whole different story. But I'm talking about the people who can work but who choose not to. And I'm I'm getting a number of texts from people about how, hey, we, we know all these folks that are that you know, like work they work part time for us, they turn down they they turn down hours, they turn down raises, they turn down different positions because they're very, very mindful of how much money they can make before you start losing the government benefits. And so as a result, they just say, okay, well, we're happy to do whatever our bare minimum is. That's bad for a country when you get into that situation. And for our, our last caller, I'm getting a number of texts from people who are saying, give out the information, I'll rake leaves. <laughs> it's, well, that's see, that's the thing. There's a lot of people that just kind of hear this and say, well, where where do you go for you know where where do you go for this you know you're paying fifteen dollars an hour or twenty two dollars an hour whatever to rake leaves well in any event I found this to be extremely interesting and I don't claim to be smart enough to know what the answer is although I don't think it's wrong to take able bodied people and that's the, that's it to, for able bodied people to say okay we're going to put in an element of a work requirement in, in order to you know you want to continue your benefits that that that's one thing but you shouldn't just be able to sit on your butt while that is going on. We want to encourage people to get into the workforce. And even if it's not the most desirable job, there's still it, it's a job. And I think, you know, the taxpayers have every right to do it. Now, clearly, that's not the way people like Tony Evers views the world. That's not the way people like Joe Biden view the world. That's not the way people like Mandela Barnes view the world. But I, I do... I just look at my friends who have been incredibly successful, who started out with nothing, and I recognize that, you know, it was that entrepreneurial spirit, that willingness to work hard that allowed them to succeed. And by not requiring people to do that, well, it's a problem. I, you know, we were out, I was only at State Fair a couple days this year because of the, um, because of our, of our Alaska trip. But I, I remembered, I was so impressed that I saw all these, these young people and a very, very diverse Group. We were talking about, you know, white kids and black kids and Hispanic kids who were, were working at these, these different stands. And I could tell for a lot of the kids, at least my sense was, this was the first job that, that they had. But I thought, okay, this is, I always like over tipped a little bit because I thought, okay, th- this is great. These kids are at least out there and, and they're giving it a shot. They're, they're coming out, they're, they're trying to work, and maybe they'll like making money and maybe it will inspire them to, all right, stay in school and get that degree and start developing that work ethic. And maybe maybe 15 years from now, they can be running the place and have the stand. I, I was actually encouraged to see that. I think there needs to be more of it. Get that passport ready. WTMJ is sending you on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to see the green and gold play in London. You could qualify for this amazing trip to London, including airfare, hotel stay, transportation, and two tickets to the game at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Tune in to Wisconsin's Morning News every day at 710 for your chance to win. This is really a cool trip. It's the Great Britain Giveaway, only on 620 WTMJ. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. I, I, I'd love to, to share that this article that 
had the basis for our conversation for the last 40 minutes with you on Twitter. If I can figure out a way to do it, I will. It's it's in the Wall Street Journal. It's behind a paywall. So if I would send it out, you wouldn't be able to access it unless you have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Let's see if I can find a workaround to that. And if I can, I will. Because again, it's to me, it, it's this interesting question about where, where we've created this society where you can essentially choose to do nothing and do almost as well, thanks to government benefits, for people who are, you know, the 92 percent of people who are working. And, and there's, there's, there's something wrong with that. There's just fundamentally something wrong with that. How you deal with it, um, time will tell. During uh, Mike Spaulding's newscast, he was talking about, you know, something that's going on today in, in the controversy. Um, I, I've mentioned this once or twice. Um, Archbishop, former Archbishop Rembert Weekland, who... I always say this. One of the things I learned from my late high school Latin teacher was the um, the Latin phrase "de mortem non nisi bonum," which says means speak nothing but the good of the but good of the dead. And I think that's a that's a good way generally through life. Rembert Weekland was um, you know sometimes you run into people who are the smartest people in the room. And they don't act like that. Paul Ryan is a classic example of that. Any room you walk into, Paul Ryan will be the smartest person, but he, he never acts like he is the smartest person. That's really a gift. Rembert Weekland, who led the Milwaukee Catholic Archdiocese from the 1970s um, into, I think, like around 2002 or something like that, he, he was the opposite of that. He might have been the smartest guy in the room, but he let everybody know. he was At least he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. And he was a very liberal slash progressive um, thinker who was very interested in trying to reform the Catholic Church and, and things like that, and, and took very, very aggressive stands when it came to social justice issues and things of the like. And I, I th- very, very controversial, because I think a lot of his ideas um, ran headlong into you know mainstream Catholic teaching. But nevertheless, th- those were his ideas. He ended up resigning pretty much in disgrace, because it turned out—there was a couple things. First of all, it, it turned out that that Weekland, who later on in life acknowledged that he was was gay, ended up paying $450,000 in archdiocese funds to a former lover of his in what was described as hush money in an effort to keep the guy from from going public. And it, and it wasn't so much the affair that he had, it was the fact that he took archdiocese money and, and paid off the guy. It then came out as we were, you know, 20 years ago as the Catholic Church was working its way through the, the various scandals involving, you know, the, the pedophile priests and things, it, it became apparent, apparent that, you know, Weakland had been up to his neck in this. In a 2008 deposition, he admitted he shredded copies of sexual abuse documents. He admitted he failed to notify law enforcement officials about reports that you had priests in the archdiocese who were molesting children. He acknowledged he moved sexually abusive priests from parish to parish without warning members of their histories. In other words, he perpetuated th- this, and he ended up resigning in disgrace, and he remains a very, very controversial figure. Well, his he passed away. His funeral is this afternoon. And and you have a number of people who are upset at the fact that he has a there's a funeral mass mass that is planned for him, you know, this afternoon, uh, because they, they feel that the argument is that it's kind of rubbing salt 
into the the wounds of of people who were sexually abused by priests and were enabled, if you want to use that word, I might, might use a couple others, but were enabled by Weakland. Um, you know, one of the you know a retired Catholic priests quoted in the, the Journal Sentinel as saying, Arch. Bishop Rembert Weakland deserves no honor or praise because doing so would put salt in the wounds of victim survivors of clergy sexual abuse, and he's calling on area priests who skip the funeral. Do not come to the funeral. Your absence from the funeral will provide support for all victim survivors and all people who have in any way suffered because of Weakland's evil actions. So to me, I, I appreciate that that point. At the same time, there were a number of people who were helped over the decades by by Rembert Weekland. I guess I think it's a matter to me. It's a matter of like in, individual things. Uh, if do, do I think that he shouldn't have a, a public funeral in Milwaukee? My answer would be no. I, I just I, I don't think that we should say you can't have a funeral here. He was again instrumental in in leading the church for decades. If people want to go, I think. They should have the ability to do that. If people decide not to go, I certainly understand that. But you know, for these people who are calling for it to be boycotted or saying we, we shouldn't, they shouldn't have the mass. To me, again, I go back to my, my former Latin teacher Juanita Bonham at Nicolay High School. You know, and De Mortem Nolisi Bonum, which is speak nothing but good of the dead. And Rembert Weekland ha- has passed, and his legacy is very, very clouded. There's no question about that. But does that mean he's not entitled to a funeral mass? I, I, I don't want to go that far. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Lots of stuff to cover in the 2 o'clock hour. Alex Crow. I just missed being a news story yesterday. <laughs> and how is that? Well, okay, because I, I live north of, of the station. Okay. And the way I go home is because now the, the easiest way for me to go home would be to go west on Capitol Drive, get on the freeway, and go north. Mm-hmm. But as, as anybody who knows this area knows, driving Capitol Drive between where we are in Capitol and Humboldt and getting to the freeway, you take your life into your mm-hmm. own hands. I mean, on on and uh, there, there's probably at least a half dozen people who over the years have worked here that have been involved in automobile accidents and people run in red lights and stuff like that. So I choose to, if it's possible, avoid Capitol Drive whenever I can. Mm-hmm. So for me to go home, I typically, instead of going west to get on the freeway, I come out and I go east. And then I go, um, so I'm going east on Capitol Drive, I go a couple blocks, and then Esterbrook Park, which mm-hmm. is right immediately to our east. It's, you know, they got the beer garden there. And I go through Esterbrook Park, and then I catch the freeway further north. That's gotcha. how I typically, that's how I typically go. Well, I don't know. I, I just so and, and normally I leave unless there's there's an advertiser interview or there's a meeting I have or something. I typically there's no reason for me to stay around after the show. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 tail lights pretty quickly yeah. out of that stuff and getting on with my life. So um, I yesterday afternoon I did what I normally do. I go through Esterbrook Park and I should add that in the summer. What they do in Esterbrook Park is they make it very difficult to speed through Esterbrook Park because I don't know if you've driven it. You know, because they have, I I would say they're speed bumps, but they're they're more like speed, (laughs) speed little walls. I mean, they're these are big butt speed bumps. Mm -hmm. You know, so you you can't 
you can't go over them very fast. Your car is going to go airborne. You're going to do all sorts of damage to your car. Sure. So you come to almost a complete stop, and then you kind of inch over them. they got two of them, and I get it. They don't want people you know, tearing through Estabrook Park where you've got all sorts of people and people coming out of the beer garden and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So, so yesterday, I probably hit it because I stopped and talked to our program director for a couple minutes. I, I probably hit it about 3.15. If I had hit it 30 minutes later— Hit it is probably the bad expression because four people were arrested yesterday. Do you see the story? I saw there was some sort of something going on. Four people were arrested um, after a police chase through the heart of Esterbrook Park Monday afternoon. Four people were arrested. Apparently, the driver crashed along the Esterbrook Parkway near Hampton. Matter of fact, as I was driving in today, I saw the tree that was half mm. down, and I still saw remains from what looked like a car that was, was still there that hadn't been clear. The chase happened as dozens of people were trying to enjoy their summer afternoon, and apparently um, what they believe is Glendale police saw this white Volkswagen which was stolen during a home invasion and an armed robbery in the city of Milwaukee. So it's not just car driving without a taillight. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this car came out of a home invasion in, in Milwaukee. So they go to pull it over. The <clears throat> officers, of course, as we do now know around here, nobody stops for the cops. So it, it took off and ran. And then <clears throat> apparently what happened is, as it was, the car goes starts to pull into Esterbrook Park, and then the police execute what they call one of their like um, they they call it a pit maneuver oh, pursuit yeah. intervention technique, where they they smack into it, hit it, that uh, hit the bumper basically, right, <laughs> forcing you to spin out one certain way, and uh, all of a sudden you're facing the opposite way, right? Well, and that's exactly what happened. So they 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 stop the car and. Um, it's plows into a tree and apparently hit another car and stuff. But here's the and this this three forty five. So I missed this by less than a half hour probably. Mm-hmm. So if I would have hung around and talked to our program director Ryan another another fifteen minutes or so and you know gone to the bathroom and had a cup of coffee or something, I I could have been a first hand witness to this carnage. Or you could yeah you could have been involved in it instead well, of just being a witness well, to it. Yeah, right, well, there see, would have been. And that is that is of course the scary thing. And I guess that's that was sort of my point about this. Other than another little dazzling detail I'll give you as well. But yeah, that's the see that's the scary thing about all this reckless driving. That you know you, you see it on the news and you go, oh boy that that's it. But you think you know, I, that that's the route I take. You know mm-hmm. if, th- if this happens a half hour earlier, I leave a half hour later. You're in the middle of this where you got people, you know, driving this stolen car that's come out of a home invasion trying to <laughs> flee from the cops. And I think there are a lot of people in uh, in, in this area who have some similar stories like that. I know I, I generally take 145 to get in. And uh, I, just a couple of weeks ago, I was driving in, Jeff, and there was everything closed down and you see police walking down it. And you're like, oh, that's for a shooting. And sure enough, there was a report of shots fired. And I must have just missed it by maybe 10 minutes when I was on my way in. It was police right. were already walking at the time that I saw it, but it it makes you think when you drive past it, like, maybe I should be driving somewhere else. Maybe you 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 never know. Right. Now, here is the other dazzling detail about, and and we'll we'll find out more information as charges are forthcoming. There's four people in the car. So it's a stolen Volkswagen that was stolen, that is running from the cops. It was stolen during a home invasion and armed robbery. Mm -hmm. So again, this isn't even just, it's a car that's that's stolen off the street. It's it's taken in a home invasion. Mm -hmm. Okay. The four people in the car, a 35-year-old woman, an 18-year-old woman, a 16-year-old boy, and a 14-year-old boy. Um, 
all the suspects are Milwaukee residents. They they don't and they don't say who was driving. So I mean, I, I it could have been. I mean, is, is it, it, this is it sounds like it's a family to me. You would think, huh? Like something along those lines, maybe some sort of extended family. I I, I don't know, but, but that's weird, isn't well, it? Well, it, it is, and they're not saying who was driving. I mean, I, you assume it's the thirty five year old woman, but I don't know. It, it could have been the fourteen year old around here. But I mean, so you've got again. I don't know if it's if it's a family, if it's a family that breaks into homes and steals cars <laughs> together, stays together, whatever. But I mean, you got a 35 year old woman, 18 year old woman, a 16 year old boy, and a 14 year old boy. And again, I, I just, I understand it, it's kind of this rhetorical thing. But you, you got kids. I mean, and I understand, I understand they're teenagers, and I believe me, I know what the juvenile crime problem is. But you got a 35 year old, and a, that's the range, and a 14 year old, and you're fleeing the police for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, even fleeing the police, it goes to your 35 years old and committing allegedly armed robbery with a 14-year-old, bringing them along while you're committing the crime. Yeah, so who, it's, uh, who, hmm. know, or who knows? Or, you know, I, again, it, it's you got all these different questions. But the bottom line is, it, again, it's it's one of these things, whenever I see these stories, whether it was the one we were talking about yesterday about the, the hit and run, the guy on 6th and Juno, mm-hmm. 1230 at night, we, we were talking about there's that the, the fancy pickup truck, yeah. that there's not that many around, so the you know, he gets hit and killed in the intersection. You you hit and you, you hear these stories, and you think it, it's not just the story that somebody's talking about on the radio. It, it that could be you. I mean, you yesterday afternoon. It's it's a Monday. There's people playing. You drive through Esterbrook Park, and they're playing that that frisbee golf thing yeah. that they play. And there's the beer garden there, and it's a nice it's a nice afternoon. That could have been anybody. And you've got these you know yo yos driving the stolen car who are you know fleeing from the cops. That's that's the scary stuff to me about the reckless driving issue. Yeah, I got the dog parks, soccer parks there too. And like you said, they've, they've got those speed bumps. They've got those mitigation measures in place. But for some people... They just uh, continue to choose to ignore them, putting a lot of other people at risk. Yeah, I got. Of course, if you're, I guess if you're driving a stolen car in the first place, you know, so you take it over the speed bump and kind of, you know, it's, it's not like you're going to be paying for the repairs. Okay, thanks, Alex. I, but I, I was thinking about that's the on an almost daily basis we could talk about like reckless driving, and this is one I'm thinking, man, you know, that's that's hitting pretty close to home. Okay, eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a question for you. As Alex was telling you during his newscast. Summerfest, which for years and years and years and years, and I'm talking from the perspective of somebody who's been going to Summerfest pretty much since there was a Summerfest, it always used to be that Summerfest, in the beginning, would open up on a Thursday and then would run consecutive days through a week from that Sunday. Right, A number of years ago, when Don Smiley first took over, they changed the format a little bit. They opened up on a Wednesday, and then they ran through the weekend. They took Monday off, and then they came back and ran Tuesday through Sunday. That was controversial at the time. The reason they did it was because attendance on Mondays tended to be— the lowest day of of the the week. And they they figured out, okay, we can get more people coming if we open up on a Wednesday than we can if a Monday. This year, they they did it differently. This year, they went, instead of 11 days, they went to a nine-day festival format, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three weeks in a row. And as, as the powers that be that run Summerfest have explained on on multiple occasions, the reason, there were many reasons why they did that. First of all, they believed that the per-day attendance would, would be higher. The, the lowest attended days at Summerfest, this is just the reality, is, is Sundays, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We, we're, 
around here in Milwaukee, we southeastern Wisconsin, we're, we're a weekend town. People tend to go out more on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I mean, I went to the baseball game yesterday. We got home at 11.30, 11.45. I'm dragging. I freely admit it. So what, what they found, what, what they believe was you'll be able to get more people on a daily basis coming on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday than you will um, running it, it consecutively. And so you bypass the Mondays, the Tuesdays, and the Sundays in particular. So you, you've got that. Secondly, they believe that by doing it Thursday, Friday, and Saturday over three weekends, they will be able to bring in more national talent. It'll be, if they have a wider range of dates, like spreading it over three weeks, they'll have a bigger choice of acts so they can have more national acts, etc. Now, last year, when they did it for really the, the first time over three weekends on the typical summer dates, um... Attendance, candidly, wasn't great. Um, you know, the average attendance was 49,500. Um, to compare the the last per-day attendance at Summerfest back in 2019, this is before all the, the pandemic stuff, it was 65,000 a day. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a factor. Over the nine days, they drew a little bit under half a million people, 445,611. That was up 8% from the numbers they did in the fall of 2021, but it, it doesn't compare to what they did, again, going back to 2019. In any event, Summerfest is out today. I'm not surprised, but they announced that they're back and they are going to use the three-day, that model, three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, over three weekends, June 22nd to the 24th, June 29th to July 1st, and July 6th to July 8th. 855-616-1620. Are you glad they are doing this, giving it a try for another year, or do you wish they would go back to the old format? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Hey, Wisconsin, the leaves are starting to fall, and you know what that means? It's time to get your home prepped for winter, and it's time for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank. Join me every week as we showcase the various ways you can ready yourself and your home for Wisconsin's infamously cold seasons. It's the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on Wisconsin's radio station, 620 WTMJ. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Summerfest announced announcing today that they are going to repeat the format they repeat that they used this year, really, for, for the first time. Instead of like 11 consecutive days, the festival will be nine days over three weekends, Thursday through Saturday. Um, I mean, candidly, I think the I think the attendance was light this year. I mean, they, they say they averaged about 49,500 people um, per per day. Um, I understand this, this is a different you're, we're still, I think people, because of COVID and the economy and things like that, I, I don't think these, these music festivals, I don't think the big public events are quite back yet. At the same time, the, the state fair, while it was a little bit lower in attendance than it was in 2019, the last year before the pandemic, it, it wasn't dramatically lower. Um, Summerfest's was candidly, it was dramatically lower. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I have friends who would take all the days of Summerfest off and uh, use it for their vacation. They can't do that 
with the new format. Um, Jeff, the non-continuous format also eliminates overtime rates. Summerfe- Summerfest would have to pay for the stagehand um, union. Jeff, I'm not interested in music since the mid-1990s. I will never go again. Well, again, I guess that means that they're, you know, in that case, it doesn't matter whether it's over three weekends or 11 consecutive days. Jeff, I think they should go back to the old way. Um, I just think that it would get more people in again. Jeff, I'm fine. So you can just tell from these texts that people are all over the map on this. I'm fine with the schedule, but they really need to think some of the acts they are booking. Um, I doubt that many people listen to some of the acts they have just to uh, name a few. Jeff, I'm glad they're doing the three-day, three-weekend. Less time I have to take off of work and more money focused on big-name national acts. Man, they just want to run this thing into the ground. The low attendance and complete lack of buzz apparently did not teach them anything. Um, Jeff, we need to go back to the original format. There's nothing like taking a day off of work a Tuesday to go hang out at Summerfest. The weekend format doesn't work. There's too much other stuff going on on the weekends in the summer. As you guys mentioned earlier, there was almost half the number of people that went in 2019. I think they need to return to the 10-day format. Uh, I think, if you're asking me, I, I think it's too soon to tell. Now, hear me out on this. There was, I think, definitely a different vibe. And this is from my perspective, somebody who, who broadcast from, from Sourfest. We were down there, you know, all three weeks. I think there was there was a different vibe. It it seemed much more disjointed to me. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you. It just, it did not have the same feeling as the continuous, you know, festivals did where you kind of build momentum. It's like, it seemed like Every day was like a separate day of concerts. Instead of a continuous music event or like a festival, the feeling was, okay, well, today's the day they have X person playing at the amphitheater, and today's the day they have X person. It it just, it did not have the same feeling. Now, that's not saying that that's necessarily a bad idea. I understand what the organizers are trying to do, and I certainly understand from, you know, their perspective, this goal saying, okay, we, you know, by Thursday and Friday and Saturday, since we are a weekend town around here, we'll get the word out, we'll we'll bring people up. What I don't know, and what like the numbers they announced today is, I, I don't know how the vendors felt about it, because at the end of the day, that's one of the big drivers. It's it's not just how many people come through the gate, but, you know, who are those people that are coming through the gate and are they spending money? Um, how Are they buying beer? Are they buying wine? Are they, you know, um, patronizing the food stands and things like that? And so I, I don't know those numbers. I'm not surprised that they're trying this for another year. And the people on the Summerfest board, many of whom I consider to be pretty good friends of mine, they're really smart people. And, and so I, I think... What they want to do is recognize that 2022, we're not fully back from the pandemic yet. There's still, we're feeling our way back and we're returning to normalcy, but we're not there yet. So I think what you're seeing is a plan, let's try this again for another year and see where it goes. If the numbers don't pick up dramatically, I wouldn't be surprised to at least see that return to the previous format on on the uh on the table. I guess my response is too soon to tell. Not surprised to see that they're bringing it back for this new format, but if it if it doesn't work, you know, in the next year or the next two years, wouldn't be surprised to see them go back to the old way. Regardless, I'm a fan of Summerfest, whether it's over three weekends or over, you know, two weekends. There was a different vibe, though, no question about that.
Okay, so Alex, do you know what is going to happen for certain at the baseball game tonight? Now, you know, you go to a baseball <laughs> game, you don't know, a lot of times you don't know, the Brewers going to win or the Pirates going to mm-hmm. win? Is somebody going to hit a home run? Is it going to be a no-hitter? We, we, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you something that's going to happen tonight. Do you well, know what that is? Barring any unforeseen massive drop in attendance there tonight, I'm guessing you're talking about the Brewers' 100 millionth fan walking through the gates. That is it. The, the total, now, there, there's got to be an asterisk behind this. If they asked me, I would have calculated this differently. Mm-hmm. But, um, right, thus far in the history of the Brewers, and this it becomes controversial, at least in my mind, because, you know, the Brewers, they spent one season in Seattle mm-hmm. where they were the Seattle Pilots, and they drew 678,000 fans. <laughs> this that attendance is rolled into this, so it's like the franchise history, but it's not just it's not the Milwaukee attendance. I, I, if I if it were me, I would I would have skipped that Seattle year, but but they didn't. <laughs> they see that's what I do for a living. You always find these things where you can like. Uh, well, I was, I was talking actually. I was at the game last night, and we we had this this conversation. We were, and I guess it's kind of nitpicking, but right. So the first year they drew six six hundred seventy seven thousand. Okay. That is rolled into this number, but rolling that number, considering the Seattle. Seattle year, um, 99,981,656 fans. So assuming that they draw, you know, 18,500, which they will, <laughs> um, they're going to go over 100 million. That's a that's a very cool accomplishment. Yeah. Now all you got to do is get the win because if it's a 100 millionth fan and then all of a sudden that becomes a loss to the Pirates, that's not going to be such a good memory anymore, will it? Oh, see what a downer you are! I wasn't. <laughs> gotta, even, I was thinking it about puts more pressure on you to win the game. Now, see, what I want to know is: Will they know who the hundredth million fan is? You know that, and mm. I, I, you know that, I, I, I mean, you know, because they, they scan them. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, wouldn't that be cool? No, wouldn't that be cool if you know they're they're there? You've got your ticket. They scan it all, and then you know, once you are that hundredth million fan. I don't know. They they give you the Toyota truck or something like that. See, that's the thing. Then they would have to fork over some sort of prize if they kept track of who the hundred millionth fan was. You get so. to go down Bernie's slide or something <laughs> like that. Now, see, I think that would be cool. But it, I, it just as I was saying at the start of the show, we've done stuff seven nights in a row, and as tempted as I am to go there because I think it's going to be fun. I think I'll probably you know listen to the game on the radio. But right, hundred million fans, including that year in Seattle uh, tonight, and then they're they're turning this into a. Um, uh, a, a sales opportunity. News release says for 38 hours from Wednesday, from 10 a.m. tomorrow through Thursday, September 1st at midnight, fans can purchase tickets for any September or October, Monday to Thursday regular season home game for just six bucks. And huh. those tickets also get you six bucks towards concessions as well. So it's okay. almost like a wash in there. You get a little bit of free food money. I don't know if $6 will buy you anything entirely at concessions, but uh, hey, It'll at least cut the price down for you. I told you I was there a couple weeks ago when they had the dollar hot dog night. <laughs> Honest to God. How did I mean, that go for you? Oh, my. Well, you, you, I've told the story, but so I don't want to bore people. But I, I walk in. You know, we get there about 20 minutes before the game. The lines are, I'm not, I am not exaggerating. They are 50 to 80 people deep <laughs> at every one of the concession stands. So, okay, we go in. I, I decide. I, but now I'm intrigued by this, so I'm not going to wait. I, I'm there to see a baseball game. I'm not I'm not going to wait that long. And I'm, I'm watching. There's no limit on the numbers of people you can buy. I'm watching these people, including four people sitting next to me, who had 8, 16, 24, 26 hot dogs and then went back Oof. for more between oh, four man. people and, and because it's a dollar hot dog. And, I'm like, huh. and so I went back in the middle of the game and— 
I, I'm standing in, in line, and I get to the front of the line, and they say, well, we're, we're out of hot dogs. We're preparing more. There's this separate line, which has about 40 people in it, waiting for the dollar hot dogs <laughs> that are there. And I said, do you have brats? And they said, yeah. <laughs> I said, I'll, take a, I'll pay the $6 for the brat, thank you, because <laughs> I want to see the ball game. Which do you think you're feeling worse the day after, the dollar beer game or the dollar hot dog game? Well, yeah, they used to have that. Well, <laughs> that, that, that's a whole other thing. But, I mean, it's just... I, it's one of the reasons why you look, and I appreciate it's a deal and stuff. But I'm, okay, I, I asked Spalding this question when the story first happened. Okay, so you're there. It's dollar hot dog night. How many hot dogs are you going to buy? Be honest. I could probably put back like three or four, but I'm not waiting in a line for 45 minutes right. to get them. And you're not, and you're not buying eight and going back for a second thing just because <laughs> they're dollar hot dogs. No, but people were doing that. So if if if, if you want to, my advice to Rick Schlesinger, you know, if if you want to, if you want to guarantee that you're, you know, you're going to draw four million people a year or whatever just have the dollar hot dog as a standard thing because people are just people are there give them the costco deal dollar 50 for the hot dog and everything and you'll just people will be lining up forever yeah, you probably make money on that too i was trying to think that through but i mean when you buy i mean how much is a hot dog really when you know if you buy in bulk you, know, yeah. you got a hot dog you got a bun yeah how much you know i'm not sure you even lose money selling them for a dollar i'm not sure <laughs> I, I shudder to think what kind of profit margins they're making on that but they're definitely making them <laughs> that's it in any event a hundred million fans tonight including seattle when we come back should we raise taxes i'll explain we'll discuss all right here is the deal. In Wisconsin, the state imposes a, a 5% sales tax on most items, 5.0%. Counties, are, municipalities are allowed to add up to a half percent increase sales tax for you know local needs. So right now in Milwaukee County, the sales tax is 5.5%. 5% being the state sales tax, 0.5% being the, the county sales tax. There's also a limit on how much you can raise property taxes, etc. This has been an ongoing battle for the last number of years. People in Milwaukee, whether it's the new mayor, the new county executive, what they want to do is they want to go to the voters in Milwaukee County and they want to say, will you support a 1% additional increase in the sales tax. So instead of the, the county getting 0.5%, they would get 1.5%. And that would increase the sales tax burden for people who purchase stuff in Milwaukee County. It would go from 55 to 6.5%. Republicans in the legislature have generally said this is a non-starter. You, you need to have an alteration in state law to allow this to happen. And they pretty much said that it's a non-starter. It's back on the table again because you've got a new mayor, you've got a, a new county executive, you've got pretty much the same sort of legislature that's there. But the, the issue is, should should Milwaukee be able to increase its sales tax? And, and by the way, this would, of course, come you know, only after a, a vote. So residents in Milwaukee County would have 
the option of voting on whether or not they wanted to increase the sales tax. And, and people in Milwaukee, Milwaukee County say, look, we, you know, we're, we're not getting as much shared revenue as we used to get from the state. And we've got all these increased costs and law enforcement and all this type of stuff. So we want to be able to increase the taxes on our residents and be able to do it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I, I understand I I defer or I disagree or I vary from the conventional attitude of some of my friends in the legislature in Wisconsin. But to me, this is a matter of local control. And if voters in Milwaukee County decide that they think that there is a sufficient need, that they want to increase their sales tax, I think they should have the right to do it. And I I don't think the state of Wisconsin should be telling them no. Now, I I know whether it's the mayor or the county executive or a lot of politicians, there was a non-binding referendum on this a few years back, and it it had overwhelming approval. I I don't know that that's going to be how the debate will come down, you know, if, if there is if the question is presented again and there's a reality. But I guess I'm a big believer in local control in this regard. And if voters in Milwaukee County want to increase the sales tax that they pay, now admittedly other people would pay as well if you shop in Milwaukee County, but if if they want to do it, I think the Republicans in the legislature should let them do it. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? The Gunslinger is back where he belongs. Catch Brett Favre with Jen, Gabe, and Chewy Monday mornings at 7.30 on 94.5 ESPN. And again at 5.15 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News on WTMJ. Presented by Orthopedic Associates of Wisconsin and sponsored by Concordia University of Wisconsin and Island Resort and Casino. I was talking about the dollar hot dogs. Lady texts me, my husband ate six. I had three. We waited 10 minutes upstairs. My number was, my question was six. Wow, how did he feel the next day? Just ask it. All right, we're talking about Milwaukee sales tax. Milwaukee, right now, county imposes a 0.5% sales tax. They, they want to increase it. They want to have a referendum, a binding referendum, go to the voters and say, let's increase it by 1%, which would make the sales tax in Milwaukee 6.5%, 5% going to the state, 1.5% staying here. Republicans in the legislature, Evers is in favor of it. And just and I want to be honest here. I I don't think Tony Evers is right about too much. But if I I would agree with this, I think I'm all about local control. And if voters in Milwaukee County decide that they want to vote to increase their tax, I think that they should have the right to do it. I'm not saying that if I still lived in Milwaukee County, I'd vote for it. But I think they should have the right to do it. Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I think what you said just makes so much sense when you look at the expenditures of a community such as Milwaukee and uh, issues that need to be dealt with. And going back decades, um, what is this 5% sales tax kept up with, with inflation, which you have to include uh, municipality wages and service to the citizens? And unfortunately, uh, an environment is created where – one political party is not going to do squat to let to allow the other political party that does something that's going to make them shine. And this is, uh, unfortunately, the environment we're in where uh, us citizens, you and me, 
I mean, can you imagine having to pay a dollar and seven cents for your hot dog instead of a dollar five? My gosh. Well, at, six. Well, at the um, same. Well, but you make, can make that argument. But you see, Dave. Is. I mean, the point is, I mean, you 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 can make that argument about anything. Well, that this is just it, it's not that that big a deal. Well. Okay, you, you know, I, I understand. We we had this whole fight about the Miller Park Stadium sales tax, and, you know, people were outraged about that. I, I, to me, there's two questions. The, the question is, d- does the populace agree to raise taxes? And, and that's why you have to have the, the referendum. And I'm, I'm, I am cool with that. Now, I think there might be some people who say, well, you know what, we're already paying enough in, in taxes, and we don't think government's going to spend it right. We've seen what they've done before. And no, we don't want to pay any more taxes for that, and that's okay. So I don't know if you have the referendum. I'm not sure it's going to pass as overwhelmingly as some people think it's going to. But nevertheless, I, to me, it's, it's the ultimate thing in local control. Now, I do think that there are some things that the state has every right to insist are, are uniform. By, for example, I, I rail regularly on the, the different communities that have different rules on state elections. Here in, in Milwaukee, we're going to have it open on these various days, and, and this is what we're going to do. But in other parts of the state, you're not going to have as much of a chance to vote as you do, say, in Milwaukee or Madison. I think, to me, that's wrong. I think when you're talking about a statewide election, um, there need to be uniform rules, and if if you can vote, if the courthouse is only open on certain times or whatever in Kewaskum, then that should be the same rule for Milwaukee. The law should be standardized. But this is different. This is it's a local tax, and if the voters in the local community decide that they want to do it, I, I say, why not?